This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. What's going on, everybody? Greetings. God bless. Grace, peace, chicken grease. Uh, this is your host, Tyler Burns, on the Pastor Mike podcast, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. So excited that you guys have joined in. Listen, if you're blessed by the podcast, if the podcast has been something that's encouraged you, we would encourage you, we would ask that you would go and rate and review uh, the podcast on iTunes. Tunes. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and then as well on Satchel. Uh, we have two guests today, and you know them both. Bo, how's it going? Oh, hey, man. I get I get the first introduction? Yes, you do. I feel um, so privileged. Because uh, you're funny. You're funny. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been on the most episodes. Uh, so, you know, when Jamar or I miss, you're always here. So we appreciate you both. Hey, man. Always happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And we needed a token white guy for this episode. Yeah, so. well, I mean, it goes, it went without saying, but thank you for going ahead and saying it. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also have our president, president of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby, as well. I'm back. You can't get rid of me. Yes, sir. We don't want to. So <laughs> before we hop into the topic of the day, we had a conversation last week about systemic racism uh, prompted by one of our listeners, David Reed, um, who, t- who tweeted us some thoughts and asked us some questions about systemic racism and the term white privilege. So we're going to get into the second term today. But before that, I wanted Jamar to take just a a few minutes and talk about a really helpful article that recently came out on Rand Network uh, on the website. It's called Riding Under the White Gaze. Um, Jamar, can you talk to us about that? Uh, Both I and Aaron James, who's been a guest on the podcast, we shared that in our respective circles, circles of influence. And I saw that it generated a lot of conversation. Um, a lot of transparent conversations. So will you give us just a, an overview of what you're going with and uh, just give people a little sampler or derve of the article <laughs> so they can go read it? Yeah, I was trying to articulate the, the difficulty I sometimes have writing for an outlet like the Reformed African American Network. On the one hand, because it's the core audience is African Americans, it should be really easy to know who you're writing for and therefore kind of what voice to use and and what considerations to have. At the same time, even when I'm writing um, for an an African-American-focused outlet like RAN, I still have feel this pressure to take into very close consideration what white people might think or say. And that doesn't sound bad when I say it, but what I mean is that pressure, which some people call the white gaze, and I just adopted the term, um, forces writers, especially African-American ones, to sort of, you know, tiptoe around what they really want to say for fear of offending white people or fear of attacks from white people who don't quite understand Um, from an insider's perspective, what it's like to be black in the United States. And so, and so it, it, it feels like it inhibits me from freely expressing what I truly want to say in ways that I would express myself if it was 
just a black audience. And so, you know, it's the difference I say in the article between being around a group of just black friends who, uh, most of the time you can assume a certain level of understanding and common experience. And so you can just speak freely, um, versus speaking to a white group or mixed group where we may not all have the same shared cultural understandings and sort of the caveats and the qualifications and the soft pedaling that you have to do in those conversations. So just trying to, you know, be honest uh, about, about that struggle. And I think from the reaction, a lot of other people share that struggle as well. Was it just a building up uh, kind of welling inside you or was there kind of a a specific incident that maybe kind of tipped you to, to writing the article? I have probably a running list of 50 different blog post ideas at any given time. Most of those don't see the light of day because I just it's 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 a it's an outlet uh in the blogging world that's open to anyone and everyone and not everyone's ready for it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it it kind of frustrates me, you know, that that I have more things to say but they can't they probably wouldn't be received particularly by a white audience not all whites there's one of the caveats right but i have uh you know just as a general audience uh it's really constraining sometimes to think well i can't say it this or i can't say it that way the way i really want to say it because you know somebody might get mad this article uh takes under the assumption that you like have a disclaimer (laughs) (laughs) exactly Right. right right So you feel like you constantly have to qualify and yes. constantly have to create these uh, soft landings, yep. right? So there's turbulence in the air, but there's soft landing at the end, you know, because it's not a it's not a sin issue. It's a it's not a skin issue. It's a sin issue, right? You <laughs> right. Know? Like, we have to speak in cliche or sometimes. Yeah, I, I totally understand that, and I think you brought up a great point about the, you know, what I've heard people call the voyeurism, the uncomfortable voyeurism that I think. You know, many outsiders would feel when they hear or see us talking about certain things, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, how am I supposed to feel about that? And how am I supposed to take that? And if I did that, and it's like, well, it wasn't necessarily meant um, to be a one-to-one comparison. It wasn't necessarily meant to be something that you would hop in and give your opinion on, although you're welcome to, but it was specifically for this particular audience. Yeah, know? And I think that's very helpful for people to contend with and consider. That's the hard part. If you if you're part of the majority or the dominant culture, in in this case, uh, whites as the racial majority, you're used to things being sort of catered for you in terms of you can understand them. They're they're written or produced or or whatever by people who understand the majority perspective, and so it's very intelligible and understandable to you naturally. And so when you encounter something that's meant for a minority group. Um, and you may not understand it as well, then it's like the people who produced it did something wrong because per- people in a dominant culture don't get it. And and people in the dominant mm-hmm. culture are like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> right. So, and, and it's like, well, every, every conversation isn't for us. Yeah, every conversation right. isn't, isn't, you know, exclusive to that. And we talked about that with the activism, yep. um, episode podcast episode, which you guys should go check out at rednetwork.org. But, um, shameless plug there. But another thing that I was thinking about was, you know, how I feel when some of my friends talk about golf, right? So I have I have a lot of friends who who play golf, and not because it's a cultural um, obstacle. I just don't get into it, you know. But I hear them boring. talk about it. And, <laughs> yeah, I personally don't get into it. You know, I'm a basketball guy um, or a football guy, but when it comes to 
you know, golf, I don't understand the game. And so when they're talking about it, I know in that conversation, I'm a voyeur because that conversation is not mm. for me. It's for a golf enthusiast. It's not for a, it's not a, a golfer dummies conversation. Right. But you know, it would be disrespectful of me if I hopped in that conversation and said, why do you guys always talk about golf? You should talk about basketball. And it's like, well, we talk about what we're passionate about. Like we talk about, or, or what would be even more disrespectful is if I came in and said, yeah, but what y'all think about Tiger Woods though? You know? And it's like, well, (laughs) they know about Tiger Woods. They know that's not necessarily the only thing that they can talk about. That's not necessarily the, the epitome of all golf, you know? So they're talking about things from a more complex nuanced understanding of the sport itself. But I'm bringing up the little that I know coming in, acting as though I'm an expert. And so it's kind of the same thing, right? Like yeah. when we, we talk about these conversations, you know, people say, well, it's, it's not a skin issue, it's a sin issue. And we're like, yes, well, we know that. But that's kind of a Tiger Woods of that conversation. You know, that's obvious. We know this about <laughs> But how do we create more nuance and complexity to understand that there's, there's some moving parts here that maybe you should, you should dive into? Or maybe this isn't the conversation. Maybe this is a conversation to ask questions and listen or not talk at all, you know, I mean, because it's not necessarily meant for that particular audience. So it's one of the things I've been thinking about as I interact with friends on a daily basis. We do this all the time. We talk about comics or Star Wars. People tune us out. Why? Because that's our thing, you know, so. So I think I it's something do, I do that. Very- you tune us out when we start <laughs> yeah. talking about it. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for making so a concrete example. <laughs> Yeah, I think that example is is helpful. It's it's difficult to to describe. Like black people understand it. If you even look at the comments, the black people are like, "Thank you, thank you for articulating something that I've been struggling with." And then the white people right. are like, "I didn't know this existed." And right. and that's sort of the 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 dual mission of Rand or what 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 it has become is that I hope that our writers and speakers give voice to what a lot of African Americans are thinking or or living through. Again, we don't mean to be the voice of the entire African American community, but simply a platform. But I hope that among the voices, we articulate some things that that resonate with minorities. At the same time, we do want to be sort of a, a, a roundtable conversation that people can listen in on, even if you're not an African-American that you can learn and say, well, I never realized that was a reality that you faced. And most of the time people are thankful. They want to learn more and they want to get better and be more sensitive to the experiences of their brothers and sisters. So I do appreciate, you know, all the comments and I appreciate all the listeners and, and the readers who, even though you may not share the same cultural or ethnic background, you're accessing the material in an, in an effort to become more aware and to love your neighbor better, I think is, is ultimately what it's about. Absolutely, man. It was, it was encouraging. So long story short, go check that article out. If you have not already share that, start some good conversations on that. So Jamar, what are we talking about today? You know, all of this bleeds in perfectly well to the topic called white privilege. And so we, we just threw you a softball here, Tyler. You're, you're going to tackle a very non-controversial, easy <laughs> so we, to understand. We are going oh, to we tackle. are. Oh, okay. We, you are not I, 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 w- I was just going to interview you. You're, you're, you're going to be the expert today. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Okay, so I do want to have two caveats at the beginning. So I'm going to be dealing with this from a five-prong strategy, five-prong approach um, that we did last Week. So we're talking about the academic definition, the personal definition, some relevant cultural examples of the said term, 
some common objections, and then also pros and cons to Christians using those terms. So just so you can know the flowchart and the format of where, of where we're going, the roadmap, that's what we're going to be dealing with. Now, my first caveat is this topic and this discussion must be put in context with other episodes of this podcast. Mm. So am I trying to get you to go listen to other episodes of Pastor Mike? Yes. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it will give you some helpful context and it will give you some helpful qualifiers um, so if this is your first episode of Pass the Mic, um, listen to some other episodes as well. It'd be very, very helpful for you to understand the totality of where we're coming from. Because while we're talking about this one particular topic, um, there's a lot of things that we say as well that will be caveats that we may not mention here, but that we've mentioned in previous episodes. So that's number one. Number two, based on the theories of where this particular phrase and where some of the other phrases that we'll use today come from, you may or may not find that to be an obstacle, right? So you may or may not find it uh, to be an obstacle based upon who talked about, you know, what white privilege is. Um, but, but hopefully we can come to some sort of agreement on realities, outcomes, and kind of the brass tacks of the facts and the anecdotal evidence of what is going on in our country. So I don't want that to be an obstacle to where you shut off the podcast, all you know, oh, these guys are liberals, these guys are this, these guys are that. Um, in reality, um, what we're trying to do is faithfully explain some social realities from a biblical lens and perspective. Will we use certain terms at some point that may cross over to the academy, may cross over with other people who we may disagree with on other issues? Yes. But I did want to utilize that caveat just because I think there are going to be some people who are listening to this episode that it may be their first time hearing us talk about these things. So I don't want you to, I want you to free your mind of the media assumptions and perceptions. We're just talking. Okay. That's helpful. That's really helpful. Great, great setup. So we'll begin with the basics. What is, do you think Tyler, an academic definition of white privilege? Okay, so a lot of different ways that we could go with this because different people define it differently. And the, the general gist is the same, right? That white privilege is an invisible package of unearned assets. So what Peggy McIntosh in 1988, she wrote kind of the, the seminal work. It's an essay on the idea of quote unquote white privilege, right? And so she says that privilege exists when one group has something of value that is denied to others simply because of the groups they belong to, rather than because of anything they've done or failed to do. Access to privilege doesn't determine one's outcomes. Let me run that back. Access to privilege doesn't determine one's outcomes. One more time for the people in the back. Access (laughs) to privilege doesn't determine one's outcomes, but it is definitely an asset that makes it more likely that whatever talent, ability, and aspirations a person with privilege has will result in something positive for them. So she wrote this essay, and it was called The Invisible Knapsack or The Invisible Backpack, about all the different ways that she sees and feels white privilege in her life. And she also talks about male privilege and other things, but we'll just stay on the topic of white privilege. Uh, The University of Dayton, it defines it like this, a right advantage or immunity granted to or enjoyed by white persons beyond the common advantage of all others, an exemption in many particular cases from certain burdens or liabilities. And I like some of the language there, an exemption in many particular cases from certain burdens or liabilities. So it relies on the two-pronged stance of, yes, there are statistics, but then there's also anecdotal evidence and experience. So I think those are some good definitions over the top to say, 
if you're just hopping in, you're like, what does this mean? This is probably a good start, a good entry level to what people in the academy and people in mass culture think about white privilege. Wow. So this might be a new concept for some. You repeated a particular line three times. Why did you emphasize that one? Access to privilege doesn't determine one's outcomes. There's a fourth for you. Um, (laughs) And the reason why I say that is because there is a perception, and we'll talk about common objections, but there's a perception that when you talk about white privilege, that that means that white people are intrinsically better, that they've done better, that they have better in all cases. So people tend to shut off this conversation before it even really starts because they say, well, what you're saying is I didn't struggle. What you're saying is my parents didn't go through anything. What you're saying is um, a la the, what Bernie Sanders insinuated, though he's been misquoted in some ways, but what he insinuated uh, rather foolishly is that if you're white, you don't know what it's like to be poor and in the ghetto and things of that nature. Um, and that's not what we're saying. And I think when we talk about white privilege, we should define – when we talk about anything that we agree with or disagree with, we should define it properly. We should give it its proper definition. And that is not what we're talking about. We're not saying that because you're white, you have access to every single thing in the world and you you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth and your life is easy. So if that's what you thought we were saying, dead that immediately. That is not what we're saying. Um, But we are saying that it will exempt you from certain burdens or liabilities. So it's important for people to understand, yes, we're not saying you didn't work hard. We're not saying you didn't do certain things to get where you are. We're just saying that there may have been fewer obstacles to get there. Yeah, at the, at the risk of tuning out Jamar, definitely, and, and perhaps half, if not more, of our listeners, I, I kind of like to draw the comparison to uh, video games, right? Because I'm, I'm a gamer, man. I, I, like, I like playing video games. And in video games, a lot of video games, you have these things called passive abilities. And what this basically is, is that because of, you know, when you start the game, you select, you know, you're going to be this particular, you know, you might be an archer, or you might be a, a sword fighter or something of that nature, whatever, whatever your situation that you choose, uh, you get certain passive abilities just because that's what you are in the game. So that could be like a stat boost, you know, this is 20% something, this is 30% something, you know, and it's, it's just there. You don't do anything necessarily to earn it. You don't, you can't even turn it off. Like it's just there. Even let's say that you wanted to like, oh man, I don't, I don't want this stat boost anymore. I, I want to be able to compete in, later on in the game as if I didn't have the stat boost. It doesn't matter. It's always going to be there because that's where it was at the start of the game. Jamar, did I lose you completely on that? <laughs> this is great. Now that's, that's actually, that's really good. That's a really helpful rubric to talk about that passive abilities. Huh. So that's interesting. That's sort of the academic definition. Do you have kind of a personal working definition that you use, Tyler, that maybe adds some nuance to it? Sure, because most of those definitions are really long. So (laughs) I try to keep it down to one compound or compound complex sentence, right? Um, The way I would define it in street-level conversations is white privilege to me, if, if I'm describing it, is a cultural norm that leads to an invisible, often intangible, and unintentional cultural advantage. So it's a norm of culture that creates sometimes invisible and intangible and unintentional cultural advantages. So the reason why I use those particular words, I try to take some of the sting out of the idea. White privilege is typically an embracive topic. So when someone is asking me, what do you think about that? Well, I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, it's changed your outcome drastically. But I think there are certain things that maybe you don't know that are unintentional cultural advantages you have 
in the currency of American uh, life and an American daily experience. There's also some other street level definitions I want to reference. These are found kind of in memes or in popular cultural uh, social media posts. So I'm not necessarily saying that these are all good, but these are some things that people have used as rubrics as well. So someone would say, white privilege is your history being part of the core curriculum and mine being taught as an elected. Okay. Mm. Another person would say, dear white person, no one is saying your life can't be hard if you're white, but it's not hard because you're white. Okay. Mm. These are two memes that I've seen. And I would like to hear really, Bo, what do you think about those two memes? How do you feel about that when, when we say that? All right. So do you want, you want me thinking or do you want gut reaction? Both. Because there's, there's a difference, right? Uh, no, I mean, okay. So the, the curriculum, I think that's, that's pretty much spot on. You know, we, we just got done with Black History Month. And you know, the argument is like, well, when can we take away Black History Month? It's like, no, why don't we increase the Black History Quarter? And then maybe black history half a year and then maybe black history every year. And then, you know, so it's not, let's get rid of black history month. It's let's increase. Let's actually get the curriculum. What did you say? The elective? Mm -hmm. Let's make the elective, the core curriculum. Um, So no, that's, that's, I think that's a a really good observation. Um, The other one was the one that kind of was a little bit of a gut punch at first until you got to the end of it. What was it again? It says, dear white people, no one is saying your life can't be hard if you're white. But it's not hard because you're white. Ah, see, those memes are always a little, I mean, granted, good point. If you're trying to convince somebody, you know, the, the, the tone of, of the comment implies a lot of assumptions based on what my understanding or even my position is. And so, you know, part of kind of the right. white mindset, and y'all, y'all address this, I think, very accurately, is that there is more of an individualistic mindset that's just kind of part of white culture. Uh, and so, you know, blanket statements like that tend to be a little bit more of a gut punch where it's like, ah, how do I react to that? Do I? Yeah. And it- oh, go ahead. No, it's funny because I, I just want to encourage you because we didn't talk about this before and you didn't know I was going to mention it, but I actually agree with you. So <laughs> I think memes of this sort are generally ineffective or ineffective in talking about this with people and actually trying to convince them. So as most as most point, memes are. I mean, when you're really trying to change exactly. hearts and minds, I don't know that memes are the best way. So when you said that, I was like, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Like I wouldn't ever use this meme. Right. right? Like I think this is – this is probably leading to a stumbling block rather than a bridge building moment. But, but is it is it is it because it's untrue or because it's a hard truth? I think it's the way that it's stated. Again, it makes it makes implications about who's reading it so that I am naturally right. on the defensive. Now, even though I actually even agree with where it's going, right. my in my you know, the way that it, it first hit me was all right, wait, I'm I'm naturally gut reaction on the defensive. Well, yeah, but that, that yeah. comes from a place like number one, the dear white people preface is often used um, in reference to when white people just don't get what what black people are trying to say about the dynamics of race relations. That was a pretty good movie. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, really I never like saw it. it. You didn't really like it. It's fine. Well, the dear so the dear white people hashtag movie whatever is it has has been in use because mm-hmm. there is such resistance particularly to this idea and we haven't gotten to the pros and cons part yet Mm. but even the phraseology white privilege by itself elicits i think a defensiveness but but i was just bringing it up because i i would make a distinction between you know is it untrue or is it a hard truth you know obviously it's a meme so it's not going to have a lot of words 
but right. I, I vibe with the sentiment um, that that being white in terms of skin color is not a disadvantage generally in society. Um, certainly not the way that having darker skin is. Yeah, it's interesting because the perception that ends up getting twisted, especially by those that don't fully understand the effects of white privilege and, and how they, they benefit from it. I, I'll give you kind of an example. Um, so, you know, I, if it's it, you guys know, and I, I would imagine some listeners do. So I've got I've got a startup company. Uh, that we've been working working on, and in my Bo early was a big deal, it, yeah, well, was a big deal. I wouldn't say that, um, but but in in the early days, we were trying to get funding, and by the way, we still are. If you're an investor, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in the early days, we were trying to get funding, and I remember uh, I remember two two very specific moments. One was I was uh, and I won't name names or anything, but I was meeting with kind of a a, a large person in the banking world. Um, who introduced me to some folks and he said, this is Bo York. This, these are his folks. These are the people he knows. You know, he's, you know, there's nobody's name that we can't mention to him because he's well, he's well enough connected. And if he tries hard enough, he's going to get the money he needs. And which was, which was kind of a weird position. Cause like, you know, I, I don't like wow. the nepotism wow. mentality. And at the same time, you gotta, you gotta find your money somewhere. Yeah. And so it's, right. it, it's a, it's a rough thing. I like, I like the idea of making my own way and then also being constantly, you know, reminded that no, 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 <laughs> you know, at the end of your day, your dad wrote you a check at some point in this process and you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and everybody's giving you an opportunity and that's just part of it. That's, you know, nobody gets to where they are on their own. And even going into those meetings as a white person. Well, and this yeah. is the thing. <laughs> so we were having, we were having trouble because the concept is in new media and I'll be honest, we're in Mississippi. The media in Mississippi don't necessarily always go together. And so I was looking kind of for outside grants and, and ways that as a technology company, we might be able to apply for some things because we're promoting innovation. And I found a ton of grants specifically for businesses being started up by African-Americans. <laughs> and so you know, as, as I read this list, there's this like it was funny because in the moment I was getting frustrated. I was like, oh, man. Ah, I really wish I had access to this money. And then I realized I thought back to that earlier conversation. I was like, right, because I got access to all those people. Mm. And there's a lot of African-Americans mm. in Mississippi that don't have that kind of direct access. Man. Now, obviously, I'm a un- you can yep. argue that I'm a unique case, right? Not all white people have access to those people, but they're far more likely to get those meetings overall. And that's just because you're more connected. I mean, it's Mississippi, man. Everybody knows everybody. You know, you're related to somebody who's related to so-and-so. Absolutely. If you try hard enough, you know, you, you, can, you can have those meetings. Man, and that, that, that's advanced stuff because most people would have stopped at – Okay, these grants are meant for minorities. I'm the wrong color. This is bogus. There's a lot of folks that's that completely job. miss that yep. mark. Yep. And, and that's, I mean, that's part of the challenge. And maybe, maybe that gets into maybe even the pros and cons in terms of terminology, in terms right. of how do you educate that mindset that just sees, oh, this isn't for me and this would really help me. You know, and, and just living in that me, me, me mindset. Oh, you man. know what I mean? Which is in right. itself a form of privilege. But, but Tyler, I think, I think, I mean, can you give us some concrete examples? Because it may still be kind of theoretical and abstract for some folks. Um, what what sure. does white privilege look like in action? Okay, so that's a great question. Now, the way people are typically going to start is different from the way I would start. Um, and one of the things, if, if we're talking about the, the previous statement about the meme and, and why I'm hesitant to use it is because it's a little incomplete, right? And so it may create an obstacle where none is needed. Now, the, the term in and of itself is already uh, a charged term. So I want to be careful with how I present it. Now, so for a lot of people, they're going to say, 
hey, it, you know, this is this is bogus. Like this this doesn't exist. So I argue from three different example planes. Okay, I'm going to argue from representation, education, and then statistical outcomes. So, for example, representation. Who is widely portrayed as American? So when you look on television, when you look in in the news, when you look at the history of politicians, we're still celebrating firsts. <laughs> there is still plenty of firsts. First African-American to do this. First um, Latino-American to do this. First whoever to do whatever it is. And when we're talking about representation, that matters. Optics matter as far as who is widely portrayed as intrinsically part of American culture. So when we think of great Americans, who are the things we are, who are the people we're often thinking about? I sometimes ask people this randomly. You know, who are some of the greatest Americans ever? Like, oh my goodness. Like, uh, they would say, well, Ben Franklin and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And, and they will, nine times out of 10, only mention people who are white. Now, some of them will mention Dr. King or people like that. But I'll say, well, why do you think that? Well, well because that's, they're great Americans. I'm like, well, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. But notice the representation of who you default went to. That says something about the broader culture at large, which leads into the next plane of argumentation, which is education. Who is taught as being intrinsically part of American history? And that's, that's important. Open up a textbook, leaf through it, and who will you find? You will find typically a very short section about Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman. And then the reality is, even in liberal intelligentsia, even in this so-called woke space of education, there's still broad inconsistency as to the panorama of who is black. I mean, there's, there's little to no mention of, of people such as uh, George Washington Carver or, or Booker T. Washington or W.E. Du Bois. And to our shame, Christians haven't done that much better either. Mm. There's little to no mention of Lemuel Haynes or Richard Allen or Francis Grimke, or Daniel Payne, or many of these people who have greatly affected the view of Christianity for the black experience, and in many cases, the white experience, but they're not talked about. And so education is massively important. Who are you teaching as American? And then we talk about statistical outcomes. So most people are thinking, oh, you're going to tell me you're six times more likely to be put in jail, and you're five times more likely to do this and that. Those statistics are readily available. But I like to sit in the anecdotal experience of things that are kind of the white noise and the um, subconscious reality of American life. So I don't like to go to the things that are like, oh, well, these are statistics. Those have their place and they're very persuasive. And we'll link some articles for you to for you to look at. But the reality is a lot of it is subconscious. So, for example, Peggy McIntosh, she gives these examples. She gave like 50 or 60 examples in her essay. And I think, Jamar, you could probably identify with some of this, right? So she says, as a white person, um, she said, I, de- I decided to try to work on myself, at least by identifying some of the daily effects of white privilege in my life. I've chosen those conditions that I think, in my case, attach somewhat more to skin color, privilege, than to class, religion, ethnic status, or geographic location, though, of course, all these other factors are intricately intertwined. As far as I can tell, my African-American coworkers, friends, and acquaintances with whom I come into daily or frequent contact in this particular time, place, and time of work cannot count on most of these conditions. Here are a few examples. Number one, I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. That's typically a reality, right? 
another one, she says, I do not have to educate my children to be aware of systemic racism for their own daily physical protection. You don't have to have the talk with your kids. Yes. As I've told you guys before, I remember running through the grocery store with something. My parents asked me to go get something, ran through the grocery store as an eight or nine year old boy. And my dad grabbed me with fear in his eyes and said, you can never run in the store. And I'm looking like, dad, I'm just going to you. This is the neighborhood we live in. Like, what's the problem? You can never run in the store. Someone may think you're stealing. Another example, I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. Now, she wrote this in 1988. Some people may think this is changing. When you look at the the hard facts of who represents news anchors and who represents, obviously, we talked about the Academy Awards and who represents things that are widely seen on television, it's a little deceptive, right? Another one, I am never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. Tyler, give us the black perspective. Jamar, <laughs> give us the black perspective on this, right? Well, hang on now. Hang on I was going to say, <laughs> unless you're Bo on Pass the Mic. Right, right. <laughs> exactly, right. But Bo again, that's the, the exception. Exactly. So another one, I can arrange to protect my children most of the time from people who might not like them. Can't tell you how many stories I have of my brother and my sister who are not much younger than me being being harassed or being talked about or racial slurs in their direction at school. Now, I can't affect that. Now, we can go up to the school, we can make a hay about that, we can tell the teachers, but they're not <laughs> on a social justice tip. I mean, my, my brother and sister are not protesters. Um, they're exemplary uh, students. They they're, um, portray themselves as very educated, very well put together, but even they cannot avoid the whiplash of a racialized society. And then the final one I'll, I'll um, point to, because this is particularly pertinent in the election cycle, I can criticize our government and talk about how much I fear its policies and behavior without being seen as a cultural outsider or as a liberal or as mm. an angry black man, so to speak. Yeah. So those are some of the examples. There are others that we could point to as far as hard brass tack statistics in the education world. Um, yeah, Jamar, you can probably talk about this is the underrepresentation of black male teachers mm, that you 2%. see in a consistent space. Right. We can talk about the financial wealth and we can talk about um, where someone lives versus where other people of other ethnicities live. We can talk about health care. All these things are factors. But I like to stand an anecdotal experience because these are some things that typically people don't think about until they're brought to their attention. Wow. So objections. Like, like I, I can just listen, just listening to those examples, I think initially many people would say, well, that doesn't happen or that doesn't happen to me or it doesn't have an effect, doesn't have a big impact. That doesn't well, happen. Wait, hang on. Which get more specific. Yeah. Where, all right. So the you say that Jamar, I'll say I'll say that there is even disagreement. And this is why there is no such thing as the black voice, right? Mm-hmm. There is disagreement even amongst African Americans on the voice. About, about about what what this is and what the impact is. People would be offended to think, and many people are saying, "Why are you saying I can't do this on my own? Why are you saying that someone's going to hold me back?" Right? So there's even objections within the black community yes. of that of that way as well. But go ahead, Jamar. Well, so so an example like I can, I can't 
protect my children from harm. And somebody says, well, that's any child of any race. Um, how is that a white privilege thing? It's a, but that's, I think most people would still see a uniqueness to that, right? I mean, I've got, I'm a father of daughters. So, right. I, and admittedly white daughters, but, but still there's a talk that I'm going to have to have with them that's going to be unique because they're daughters. I guess my point is that yeah. the, the pushback I'm just trying to understand the pushback because I, I don't, I don't, it's hard for me to, I, yeah. you know, some, sometimes, you know, you, you may presume, well, I think the pushback would be this. And I'm like, well, I don't know that that that's right. I don't, you know, it, it, in this case, the pushback might not be that doesn't exist. It's more of like, well, that exists, but it also exists differently over here, which is not necessarily right. a helpful mindset, mind you, but curious as to yeah, your thoughts on I that. I get lots of different pushback. Like, yeah? like number one, does white privilege exist at all? Well, no, that's a whole other thing, right? <laughs> well, if you're questioning that's, the very existence of it, right? Yeah, right, right. right. Yeah, you know, good. then you're going to question all the examples that you, you you put forth to support it. And I think that's, that's the good. biggest sort of objection that I get is what white privilege. The concept of white privilege, what it does is it violates my sense of meritocracy. That what I have gained, I have earned. And I haven't had any undue advantage, or at least relative to other people, haven't had any tremendous advantages that got me ahead and put you behind, so to speak, in these social categories. And so that rubs anybody, no matter your skin color, Mm. the wrong way. The, The idea that you got into the college you got into, or you live in the neighborhood you live in, or you're able to have the opportunities that you have and you can afford for your kids to have... Um, because of anything except your self-determination. Sure. sure. Yeah, let, let me, and let, let's talk about that, right? So that was one of the objections that I wrote down. Someone would say, oh, I don't have privilege, right? Well, that's, that's offensive for you to say that I have privilege. Well, we all have privilege. Um, privilege exists, right? So there's, there's this concept of intersectionality, right, which says we're not Thank any you. one of our attributes. So it's very important for us to talk about that because whenever someone says, well, you're just saying you have it bad because you're black. Well, I'm not just black, but I also was born into a two-parent home, right? That was outside of my choosing. Um, I was also born a male, so that was outside of my choosing. So certain things I don't have to think about when I go out at night that my wife will have to think about because she's not just black, but she's also a black female as well. So when we talk about privilege, I have privilege. It exists for me. It's not just that you're black, you can't have privilege. It's just that you don't have all of the same privileges that maybe another group has. And I'll give you a very pertinent example when it comes to ministry. When it comes to ministry, my father (laughs) is known in our city as a pastor. Mm -hmm. And because he is known as a pastor, I say it all the time, I'm no fool. If I were just regular Joe Schmo's son, I wouldn't get probably as many opportunities to speak at certain places as what I get now because I'm Greg Burns' son. And people say, oh, yeah, you're Greg Burns' son. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's automatically some sense of connection that they have to him that falls down to me, which opens up doors that wouldn't otherwise open up. So if someone's saying, I don't have any privilege or white privilege doesn't exist, then I'm saying, well, you don't think any privilege exists. And then I think we can pretty easily debunk that that's the case, right? If you grow up in a certain environment, people know you. And if you do well in certain areas or your parents have done well or your brother did well or your sister did well, your connection to them carries weight. 
it carries social capital. And that can open up intangible doors or be a positive influence for you in ways that you may not readily see until someone sits down and shows you this is how you have been blessed. This is how you have been assisted. And there lies the challenge because when is that going to happen? <laughs> well, we're doing it now. Exactly. Right. Well, <laughs> exactly. But even the fact if, if you're listening to this, one assumes that you're coming into the discussion with some kind of – uh, I mean, you, admittedly, you know, there are folks who listen to the podcast and, and vehemently de- disagree with much of what they hear, but they're still coming sure, to the podcast sure. with with at least an understanding of what it is they're going to hear. You mm-hmm, know what I mean? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so there is a bubble mentality, and this is part of white privilege as well, is that they, the, you have the ability to kind of live within a bubble that is kind of based around your worldview and based around your understanding of the way the world works. And so, you know, if, if that bubble has never burst, then there's never – you can live in blissful ignorance. Now, here's a question. Has the age of social media and the internet, has that sufficiently burst the bubble or has it made people almost, has the bubble gone from bubble to a shell and everybody's just turtling up at this point? You know what I mean? (laughs) Good question. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think it's really affected it that much. Mm. I think people actually have more ammunition now because we're not talking about a vacuum, right? Because most of what we hear on social media is not pro, there is an idea of white privilege. Like people think that there's this liberal bias that affects all of media, but the reality is you can just as easily go to sources that would try to contradict and deny its existence as easily as you can access sources that would expose it. So it's also created kind of this, this uh, explosion of resources and information and perspectives that can counter this concept and mm. counter this idea. And so, to be honest, I, I don't think it's really helped at all. <laughs> I mean, I think it just made it, it's made it more, um, more obvious for people to have to ignore and do gymnastics to get out of it, right? That, but I don't think it's really made it better because, you know, I don't think we're becoming more enlightened because time has passed and we have more inventions. Right. You know, we still have the same sin, sin issue. It's, I think it gets more to what you said about it's becoming harder and harder to kind of, to try to find a way to claim ignorance or, or perhaps even support your own ignorance. Yeah. That's what, that, that's what social media has done is yeah. made this information accessible. So I think what, what white privilege does is bring up another concept of white guilt. Because yes. if I have these unearned privileges because of my skin color and I acknowledge that I have these privileges, well, now I feel guilty. That's racist. <laughs> How dare you? Like, what do, you, what do I do with this now? Like, right. I can't not be white anymore and I, cannot, I can't not have these privileges in our society. And so now I feel bad because I have an advantage over my darker skinned brothers and sisters. I don't yeah, like that I terminology. That? that terminology feels racist for me to say that I, a white person, have white privilege. That goes against what I've been taught which is that we don't have a racist America, that racism isn't alive in America, and I need to fight against racism. If I say, as a white person, I have privilege because I'm white, that sounds very racist. Right. Well, it's also, we have to, I want to save the white guilt comment because I want to talk about that in pros and cons. But I think we also have to acknowledge that when we're talking about what it comes, what it means to, to have white privilege or to talk about white privilege we are talking about a systemic reality. Mm. And we're talking about a structure and a system. We're not just talking about, I don't feel a certain way when I see black people, or I don't judge black people by the color of their skin. 
Like a lot of people think that would be another objection. Well, what you're saying is I go around, I judge black people or judge people of color. And the reality is that's not what I'm saying. Like what we're saying is the system, you've become a part of a system that subtly reinforces norms and realities that you don't even think about on a day-to-day basis that you flow into. You know, when I when I went to see, um, the wife and I went to see um, one of our, our young people in our youth group uh, play soccer, and she was playing a soccer game, and um, the team that she was playing is from the suburbs, so the team's from the suburbs, and um, we're sitting right around them and everything, and then they're talking about the next game. And so we hadn't really interacted or anything. They're talking about the next game and uh, that they're playing. And they're saying, oh, well, this that's, you know, quote unquote, Pensacola High School, which is the uh, bad part of town, so to speak. So they start trashing PHS. I mean, just trashing and saying, yeah, you 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 drive through that neighborhood with your gun in your lap, ready for whatever's going to come. The thugs are in that neighborhood or whatever. Now, my mom grew up in that neighborhood. <laughs> so. So when we talk about, oh, well, 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 look at this bad neighborhood and this, that, they're reinforcing stereotypes mm. that, that my family came from. Mm. Like, my mom graduated with honors. She's college educated. Like, what are you talking about? She grew up in that very neighborhood. There's good people in that neighborhood. But because you're outside of that neighborhood, you can come in and talk about that neighborhood without ever having to engage the felt needs of said neighborhood and then leave, take the next bus out. And so- that is is just the reality of systemic reinforcement of oh if it's inner city then it's it's violent if it's inner city then it's it's um, urban or it's it's got it's crime infested or it's drug infested or what have you right and so I think the reinforcement of systems we have to talk about because if we're not having the conversation on a much broader level than oh well, I said a slur about a black person we're never going to get to this point where we can say, yes, you are part of a system. I also want to talk about this idea, and this is a common objection, that it's incompatible with Christianity. Yeah. So when we're talking about white privilege, the Bible doesn't say anything about white privilege. Like, Why would you say that? How would you respond to that, Jamar? Because I have some thoughts, but how would you respond <laughs> to that? Well, it sort of goes into my next question, which was along those same lines. Should Christians be using the term white privilege? Should we be ascribing to that kind of okay. ideology. And yeah, why don't you answer that first? Here's what I'll say. I think that the term white privilege is a term that carries heavy baggage. And the reason why it carries heavy baggage is not just because it's a hard truth, but because it has been created and used to further mass political agenda. Now, that's with anything, right? So it's kind of like, well, we, we can't just say we're, we're going to stop using the word, uh, stop using the phrase because of it. But here's what I'll say. If, for example, you, it's too abrasive, you can't bring it up, you're a pastor in a church, you're trying to introduce this to your congregation so that they can use their uh, quote unquote privilege well, change the term. <laughs> Flip it. Use something else. I mean, it's something I say to people all the time, and it's a code, code phrase. And the people around me know what I mean when I say it, but I say, use your unique position. <laughs> I always talk about it. I just always say unique position. Yeah, well, I think, I'm, I think you're in a unique position to speak to that. <laughs> you're in a really unique position to, to address people like, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, maybe God has called me to do this. Maybe God has called me to do that. And am I, am I tricking them? No, I'm just using a term that they would be more comfortable with. So I'm not saying, yo, man, you should use your white privilege to help 
those people who may be marginalized or disenfranchised. I'm like, man, well, your church is in a unique position to kind of speak to that problem at the elementary school, right? I mean, I think I think you guys probably speak to that better than we could because you're you're close to it. Yeah. Change the term. I don't care. <laughs> like, well, I really don't care. I think there are pros to using the term because I think it, it gives necessary synthesis to an idea that's typically hard to explain, right? So it's an easy, quick way of explaining it. I also believe it's one of the best indicators of the presence of systemic racism. So it really helps out when we talk about, okay, well, how do we prove that racism is a system rather than an individual thought or word or action? But on the con level, it can promote this white guilt. Feeling bad about injustice and refusing to collude with an unjust society are two different things. Like, so when people come in and they say, man, I feel bad about this. Well, that doesn't mean that you refuse to collude with an unjust system. That doesn't mean that you've done anything. You've just felt bad. And we don't want to motivate just simply bad feelings. We want there to be action attached to it. So if people are feeling bad about this, if they're feeling guilty, recognize that every good gift comes from God. Right. Every good gift, every place that we have been positioned, according to Acts 17, is by him. He has order of the times that we live in and the habitation of our dwelling so that we seek him and find him because he's not far from us. What do we have, Paul asked, that has not been given to us? We have been recipients of the grace of God. And if we truly believe in the gospel, we believe that it wasn't because of our merit. It wasn't because of our good deeds. It wasn't because of our talent. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many righteous. But God has chosen foolish things to confound the wise. So we are part of the unlikely group, the people who are enemies of God, but now are our children of God, that we were the ones that had wrath with God. We were, God was angry at us because of our sin, but now we are a part of his family. We have been adopted in by Christ. So we should recognize that if our salvation isn't of our merit, it shouldn't be a huge leap to think that the things that we enjoy in this life are also blessings from God. So do we feel guilty for the blessing of God? God forbid, we steward it right. We steward it well. And there's examples of this. There's Esther, there's Moses, there's Nehemiah. There's plenty of people. You say, white privilege is not in the Bible. Well, there is a prevailing narrative of people using their unique position to speak to certain issues and systems and structures and to liberate people and to give them the gospel. You see that all throughout the scriptures. So where have you been placed, whether black, white, or or another? And what has God given you to use to impact your circle of influence with his timeless truth. So if, if it's an obstacle for you, change it. Use a different term. Don't use it. But if this is something that you feel like would continue and further the conversation, then I totally think it's a great thing to use within the context of understanding what the gospel is and why it's important. Preach. I think that's exactly right. What white privilege has often, especially on social media, been used to do is to bash white people and to say, ostensibly, you've got it much easier, or at least I want you to understand how hard it is for me as compared to you. And there's an element of truth in that. But as you're putting it, Tyler, it's really a, a, a positioning, a what I use sometimes instead of the words white privilege is cultural capital. That, yes, that, yes, that's so good. That people have that can be used for justice. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so maybe you do have advantages that come with your skin color uh, in living in this this culture. 
Well, how, how do you steward that as a means to help others who may not have the same advantage? And, and, and I think it should be ultimately used as a positive term. And I think Christians shouldn't have any trouble understanding the idea of unearned privileges because that's the idea of grace. Salvation yes. comes to us not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who we know and what he's done for us. And so, so, so it's that merit by association through faith in Christ. That is, that is the meaning of grace, that, that we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, but we get included in it because of the generosity of the one who holds all the capital, who is God. And so, so he condescends to, to share his son's righteousness and his son's privileges with us so that we can be called adopted sons of the king. So, so, so if we think of it that way, if we think of you know, every, every good gift that we have, every social platform or advantage that we have can be used to create justice and participate in God's kingdom-building work in the world, then I think Christians can and must understand and, and use the idea of privilege, whether that's based on skin color, gender, economics, language, yeah. you name it. You, like you said before, we all have certain privileges. We all have certain advantages, and it boils down to uh, how are we using those for kingdom glory. Yeah, and I also want to say, and that's really helpful, I just want to say I'm not saying you should run away from talking about the concept because it's hard, but you know, sometimes I think we, we get caught up and hung up on terms, and we're not playing the long game, as I like to say. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to win a short-term argument, and we're trying to stick it to somebody who we may think has repressive racial views. That doesn't help them, and that doesn't help us uh, to stimulate grace. Um, so maybe there is a better way that we can say it. And and if you have a better way, write us, email us, like leave a comment, like tweet us, let us know if you think there's a better way for us to talk about that, um, whether it's cultural capital or unique position or even just the, the term white privilege. How do you feel when you hear us talk about that as a white person or as a person of color? Um, and there's I, I should say there's a whole length of things we could say about the, the multiplicity of ethnicities and what they face as far as stereotypes, we have zeroed in on the African-American experience. There's many different experiences that we could talk about. So, so yeah, I think this is more than just one episode. I think this is a broader conversation, but I'm not, I'm not advocating for people to run from the concept. But if there's a better term and you figured out a better way, more power to you, um, more privilege to you, haha, pun. But um, <laughs> utilize it. We definitely, we, we need that. And um, whatever whatever it takes to push people closer to the kingdom of God. It's good. Well, I think there'll be some interesting discussion that comes after this. But I love this. I love this. We need to – you guys really, listeners, please send us your questions. Uh, anything you hope that we can clarify. I don't know that we'll – make it clearer for you, but we can at least weigh in um, things that you're addressing in your context, questions that are coming up, pushback that you're getting. We'd love to hear about it. Make this you know relevant to where you are and the calling that God has you in, the placement that, that, that you're in right now. So let us know. Twitter's easy. Facebook comments, comments on blog posts, all that good stuff. Tyler, you did a great job. Thanks for, for preparing and being so thoughtful about this and pastoral. I appreciate it, man. This has been fun. Um, 
just trying to follow in your example. You set a high bar. Mm. Last week I was listening to you. I was like, oh, man, like I got to go back and work on some more stuff. I got to <laughs> ask some stuff, throw some research in, you know, so you set a high bar. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's do this again soon. I love having Bo on the show. Thanks, Bo. I, I don't, Always. I'm sure it's 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 the least favorite part of everybody who's listening. They're so ready for next week when I'm not going to be on the show. <laughs> nice. Well, I want nice. you to talk about Satchel very soon, so we may have you on for another segment. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> we want to thank you for joining us on this episode of Pass the Mic. As always, you can learn more about the Reformed African American Network by visiting rannetwork.org. You can follow the network on Twitter at Rand Network, as well as the show at underscore pass the mic. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Reformed African Americans. Pass the Mic is a collaborative effort between the Reformed African American Network and Pottery Studios. Visit Pottery.com to discover the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer and co-host for this show is Bo York, and the other co-host has been Jamar Tisby. And I've been your host, Tyler Burns, and we'll see you soon on the next... Pass the mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode was brought to you in part. By United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.